Good morning, everybody. Good morning online. You guys are here with us. Uh, I had one of those weeks. Any of you had those? So singing that song was good music to my soul, so encouraging. And then this passage uh, that I studied this week um, was very timely for me, and I hope that it will be timely for you. I, I was reminded as I studied Paul's words here to the church, church in Thessalonica that this is a message of encouragement to persecuted believers. So they had lots of those weeks, right? But this, this message came from a man who was well acquainted with hard weeks, hard days, lots of loss. I, I want to remind us out of 2 Corinthians, this was Paul's description of a lot of his life. This is just a little sliver of his story. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. Five times, Paul says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. My life doesn't begin to approach the difficulty <laughs> of Paul's, and I don't imagine yours does either. But isn't it encouraging to know that he understands, as he writes to this church 2,000 years ago, he understands what it's like to face the, the very difficulty of life each and every day. Here's what Paul would say to us, and he's going to say it today. One thing you got to have is gratitude in the grind. You can't make it without it. The minute you and I lose gratitude, we are in deep, deep trouble. It is that thing that carries us through all of the hardship. And I want to tell you guys, we have more to be thankful for than we can even imagine. And today, we are going to get one of the most beautiful lists of those things that ought to give us thankful hearts each and every day. So I hope you're ready. Uh, we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're picking up in verse 13. And here's what Paul writes. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, 
Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. One thing that's amazing, and we're just going to cover five verses today, but it is just packed. It is loaded with so much. Uh, I will scratch the surface. This is one of those passages I think you could go to again and again and again and just keep digging and asking the Lord to show you what you need to see. But I want to remind us that this passage follows immediately after Paul's reference to a group of people in the end times that would be perishing. And he reminded them that these people perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. They rejected the truth and therefore were not saved. He said they will be condemned because they did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. And truly, I think for Paul, and, and as I read that, and perhaps as you hear it today, it's, it's cause for great sadness. I mean, we want the Lord to be vindicated. He is certainly a God of justice, but that is great loss. And I think it saddens the heart of God in great ways. Then right out of that explanation, Paul begins this passage we're at today. But, Paul writes, despite all of that, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Which immediately everybody's on the edge of their seats saying, well, for what? Like, well, what are you giving thanks for, Paul? And, and the fact is, if you're giving thanks for all of these things for me, then it stands to reason that I could and should give thanks for these same things for myself. Like I can go back to this list again and again and again, regardless of what kind of week I have, and give thanks to you. So here's seven realities of the Christian life for which you and I can give thanks every day. First and foremost, at the very heart of this passage, you are saved. You know, that's one of those churchy words. We hear it all the time. And I'm afraid that we think too little of it. We just sort of get used to, yeah, I'm saved. I, think about this. If you're drowning... And someone saves you. What do you think that's like? Do you think you ever forget it? Do you think you ever just kind of go, yeah, I mean, I was on my way to the bottom and ha, I was saved. No, I imagine every time you go back to that moment, it, it surfaces all of this amazing emotion about what that was like. Anyone who needs to be saved is by definition not able to save themselves. Helpless, hopeless, needy. 
I'm afraid that the reality of our need to be saved is grossly underemphasized in our hearts and minds. It's just so easy to forget how bad off we really were. And I know in our culture today, it's not, it's not great to spend a lot of time thinking about how bad off we were. We just, we'd rather have the power of positive thinking. But I don't think you and I can really appreciate what it means to be saved if we don't remember with great clarity what it means to be lost. Paul writes in Ephesians that we were, if you're a Christian, if you've entrusted your life to Christ, prior to that moment, you were spiritually dead in your sin. You were chasing after the world, and I know that looks different for everybody, but somehow the world was more attractive to you than the things of God. You were following Satan's lead. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that you're a Satan worshiper, per se. It just means that, biblically, you're, he's called your father. If you don't know Christ, he's your father, and you follow his lead, his initiative, his direction, his enticements. That's what you do when you're spiritually dead and lost. You and I were driven by fleshly appetites. What else would we do? And Paul says we were by nature children of wrath. And then in the middle of Ephesians 2, but God. Hmm. But God saved us. He saved us from three very important things. First of all, he saved us from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. That's what it costs when you and I live in rebellion against God. It's death. But God intervened and saved us from that penalty. Not only that, he saved us from the power of sin. So those who have entrusted their life to Christ, we're told that, that sin no longer has power over them. The only power that sin has is that which the Christian gives it. So you and I, truly, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can literally say no to sin all the time. Now, I don't imagine anybody in here does that. But isn't it good to know that God did that for you and for me? He made a way of escape so that you and I could resist not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin in our everyday life. And then lastly, he saved us from the presence of sin. We aren't experiencing that in the moment, but... Uh, Kevin just talked about it. There's going to be a day where it will be no more. We will never again have to experience the presence of sin in any part of life. Give thanks. Paul goes on to say that you are saved because you are loved. 
This is actually God's explanation for why he saves anyone. And if you're like me, I, I certainly wondered this a whole lot when I was a little boy. I just thought, why in the world would God save a kid like me? I, I, I didn't really struggle with the idea that God owed me something. That he was obligated to me, and some may have that story, and that's okay. I'm just saying, for me, I was actually really good at listing all of the reasons why God surely couldn't love me. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when, even when... We were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You and I were not impressive. We were not extraordinary. We were not exceptional. God wasn't scanning the world and going, oh my gosh, look at that guy. No, while we were dead, drowning, lost. He said, I love you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. If you're having one of those days or one of those weeks or one of those months, maybe even a year. Don't forget, God loves you more than you can even imagine. And that's a reason to give thanks. Lastly, in this first part, uh, you are chosen. You're saved, you're loved, and you're chosen. Now, it's natural to think of this concept of being chosen as being chosen over another. See, we, we just gravitate toward this very horizontal framework. So I think that God chose me over another one. God chose me instead of someone else, instead of him choosing me in spite of me. That's the better way to understand chosenness. It's not as if God had 100 people lined up and he said, I'm going to take those 30 over and against these other, my math is bad, 20, 70, whatever. (laughs) Math was not my strong suit, okay? (laughs) No, it was like he went down the line one at a time. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. Don't don't look around. 
Don't look to your left. Don't look to your right. Don't worry about what God is doing with anyone else. Take that in. God chose you in spite of you. Biblically understood, our being chosen doesn't eliminate our personal choice. That's another struggle that we have with this doctrine, and we'll see that in a few minutes. But mysteriously, God's choice and our trust are compatible and instrumental in our salvation. And that's by God's design. It isn't some kind of accident. It's not an afterthought. Somehow God put together his choosing and our trusting. Think of it this way. Um, imagine like a life buoy. I used the drowning illustration a while back. So you've got this person drowning and someone chooses to throw a life buoy to them. And maybe it bumps up against their arm. Now, is the fact that someone chose that buoy, someone chose to throw that buoy at them, does that save them? No, they, they actually have to take hold of it, right? They have to grab onto it and, and hold on. Otherwise, they're going down regardless of the proximity of the buoy. So it's not that one or the other is more important. It's that they work together. Those are compatible with one another. And there's no need to put them against one another. They work together. God chooses and we trust. And Paul puts that right into this passage. Uh, Commentator uh, J. Hampton Keithley writes this, The believer's future is described both from the standpoint of God's sovereign activity and man's personal responsibility. Here in this passage, we see a beautiful balance that is so often missed as theologians discuss the issues of God's sovereign election and salvation versus man's responsibility. In these two verses, the apostle shows us the necessity and fact of both in man's salvation. However we might struggle with this, I think a great posture of humility is captured in Isaiah 40. I mean, you and I can have interesting discussions about how salvation works and how all the pieces fit together and, and all of that. I just want to remind us, it was a good reminder for me, Isaiah 40. 13 and 14, who has measured or directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows or gives him his counsel? Whom did the Lord consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. I, I'll just let that speak for itself. 
After establishing our being saved, loved, and chosen, Paul outlines the means by which we're saved. He includes that in this passage. So you and I were set apart by the Spirit. We get that from that word sanctification. You were saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Now, if you know some theological words, you'll know salvation is broken into three components, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is that moment of conversion where you do go from death to life. It's, an, it's a momentary, instantaneous thing, just black and white. Glorification is the end of it all. That's when you and I are made new and completely made righteous. We take on conformity to the image of Christ in, in a perfect sort of way. So that's, that's the end of it. So we got the front and the end. In, the, in between here is this thing called sanctification. And several passages will use that word in different parts of life. We're actually said here to be sanctified by the Spirit really close to that moment of justification. And then we're said to be sanctified over the course of life, which, is mean, which means we're made more and more and more like Christ over the course of life. And then when we get to the end, being glorified, we will also be perfectly sanctified. That being set apart, that being transformed will be complete. So the idea here, this is a progressive aspect of our salvation, but Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit was setting you apart, sanctifying you, giving you an ability to respond to God's initiative. It's the preliminary work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate, to convict to lead a person to faith in Christ. If the Holy Spirit were not active, maybe you and I wouldn't even care about our sin. Maybe you and I wouldn't, the thought wouldn't even cross our minds that we're lost. You, you, I, I got everything going on, man. I got my house, got my kids, got my wife, got my job. You know, like everything's fine. But the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not fine. Because life is about way more than just material stuff. Life is about your soul. The Holy Spirit gives that kind of understanding. So Paul is saying, you can be thankful that God was so kind to give you an understanding about yourself and about Him and about life that you never would have without His help without his sanctification. So be thankful. Now, in response to that, Paul says, you placed your trust in the truth. And we just looked at last week a whole group of people who do not trust in the truth and will not trust in the truth. And they will spend eternity separated from God as a result. So be thankful that by God's grace, you came to a place where you said, Lord, I'm giving up on me. And I'm just asking you to do for me what I could never do for myself. Now, this is that part of the picture of salvation 
where our responsibility, our choice, our will plays an instrumental role. And that's how it's portrayed in the Bible. That's why we don't want to separate God's sovereignty from man's responsibility as if they're opposed to one another. Acts 16, 30 and 31. This is uh, the Philippian jailer when Peter and the boys are in jail. And there's some miraculous stuff going on. The jailer brings him out and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They do not say... It's already done. You're good. You're fine. You did a nice deed for us. Or you're asking the question, so yeah, you're fine. That's not what they say. They said, believe. That's a conscious choice. That's an act of the will. And not just anything. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved, you and your household. John 1, 12. To all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed or trusted in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 10, 9 through 13, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe or trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Cause effect. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's a volitional aspect of our salvation that is real and consequential. In other words, no one is saved without believing. It has to happen. It's just part of God's design. But it doesn't in any way diminish the sovereignty of God as instrumental in this process. It is mysterious and it's marvelous. It's a meaningful expression of genuine relationship. And so where we see belief being instrumental, we don't want to diminish that because God intended it to be that way. It's there. Let's give thanks for that, that we have believed. Next, you, call, you heard the call of the gospel. The expression of trust is a response to God's invitation, and God's invitation comes in the form of the gospel. Now, hearing here is not just auditory, so it's not like I heard a sound. But this kind of hearing has knowledge and understanding associated with it. So if I heard the gospel, that means I grasped its substance and significance. I understood what it meant for me and how I should respond to it. This points us back to, if you remember from 1 Thessalonians, when Paul was celebrating 
the response of the Thessalonian church. Here was one of the things he wrote about them, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He said, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul calls the gospel the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So they heard the gospel from Paul and his fellow missionaries, and they understood this this applies to me. I need this. Lord, I want this. And then they gave thanks for the gift of salvation. Gospel truth is delivered personally. I think that's something that arises here, something for which, again, we can give thanks. Most of us, there's some exceptions, I'm sure, throughout history, somewhere in the world, but most of us heard the gospel from another person. That's God's design for spreading the gospel. So Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him? Paul is celebrating the fact that they called, uh, they heard the call of the gospel. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, proclaiming the gospel? That's the part that you and I get to play in God's redemptive plan. So Paul's thankful that they heard the call of the gospel, and you you and I can be thankful as well. Lastly, if that weren't enough, Paul adds to his reasons for gratitude the ultimate aim of salvation. And he mentions it here. He says, you are destined for glory, for glory. Um, So we're all watching the Olympics right now. We think about that gold medal standing on top of the podium. And let's just think of that as this very tarnished glimpse at what glory must be like. Like in that moment, it will be next to nothing about us and everything to do with him but we'll actually get to share in that somehow I don't even quite get it (laughs) how that's going to happen but I know that it will eclipse any experience of glory that we might have had in this life God calls through the gospel so that the purpose we can obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, What's so encouraging to me is that this is a complete reversal of the fall. So uh, Paul writes in Romans that all have sinned, right? You've heard this verse before, right? All have sinned and what? Have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet... When all things are made new, 
we are going to obtain the glory of nothing less than the Lord Jesus Christ. How about that? Is there anybody in here that could perform well enough to stand on top of that podium? No, we will, I think we'll just be in awe. I think we'll just marvel at landing there. The beautiful surprise of God's grace and goodness. Perhaps that's what Paul had in mind in 2 Corinthians 9.15 when he said, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. God is so good. Well, in verse 15... We get a so what. We're not done yet. We got a few more minutes here. But verse 15, it's like, so Paul has listed all of these things for which he is thankful as he observes the Thessalonian church. And then he answers the question, well, so what? So we're saved and we're loved and we're called and we've been set apart and we've responded. We're going to obtain glory. So what? Verse 15, so then... Brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Remember, we just got out of being reminded that there was false teaching that was taking place in the church that was disrupting everybody. And so he's saying, in light of all that God has done, in you and for you. Stand firm. Don't get sucked into the the false ideas of this world. And hold on tight. That, That idea of standing firm... It's probably better... Like I, I sort of think of like digging in, right? Stand... It's really more of a, just a mindset. It's just being resolved. It's being steadfast. It's being determined. It is an attitude with which you're going to face whatever stuff is bombarding you turns to falsehood. So you just made up your mind, I'm going to resist that. I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to stand in where I am. But not only that, he says, hold on tight. So these ideas certainly go together, but it's different. This is now action. This isn't just the mindset. This is taking hold, grasping strongly and tightly so that whatever you have hold of cannot be taken away. That it cannot be lost. Now, I'm not talking about salvation here, so don't don't start going down that path. Remember, the issue at hand is there is truth, and then there's everything else. And he's saying, if you don't take hold of and hold on tightly to truth, then you're going to get battered around like the waves of the sea. You're going to become distracted. You're going to become discouraged. Your growth will be stunted. You'll be affected by that. So hold on tight. To what? The traditions. 
These are not man's traditions. These are not the church's traditions in the sense that like there's thousands of denominations and they all do things a little bit differently and we're going to hold on tight to our traditions. No, please do not. Hold on tight to the apostolic traditions, the teaching that came directly from the Twelve and Paul. It's right here and nothing more. Hold on tight to this. If you don't read it, if you don't meditate on it, if you don't absorb it and assimilate it into your life, if you don't apply it, you will be deceived. No questions. Don't ever take my word for what this says. I'm doing my best. But it is true regardless of what I think about it. You hold fast. Assimilate this into every facet of your being. And let it guide every step that you take. Those are Paul's instructions. That's your so what in light of the goodness of God and all that he has done for you. Stand firm and hold fast to his word and let it guide your steps. Now, we have a doctrinal statement as a church. It does not replace this. It is our attempt to understand it, particularly as it relates to the essentials, those things which we must believe if we are to be Christian. So you can go to our website, fbcrc.org slash about slash beliefs, and you can see it right there. Those are the things that we believe Paul is referring to here. Those are the things that we are to hold tightly to. I heard this amazing illustration this week, uh, an old baseball coach speaking at a conference, thousands of other coaches, and he, he stands up at the front and he's got a big old baseball home plate hanging on a chain around his neck. And he says, coaches, how many of you in here are little league coaches? And all these hands go up. And he says, how wide's a home plate for little leaguers? And somebody out in the crowd shouts, 17 inches. You're right. Got any high school coaches in here? A bunch of other hands go up. How wide is home plate in high school ball? 17 inches. That's right. Minor leagues. Any minor league coaches in here? How wide is home plate? In the minor leagues, 17 inches. How wide do you guys think home plate is in the pros, in the majors? You guys are brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you see, that 17 inches, that's the standard for baseball. It never changes. Now, if there's a pitcher that can't quite get the ball over that 17-inch plate, what do you think they do? 
I'm just parroting this coach. He says, do you tell Jimmy, Jimmy, you know, it's okay. Don't worry about that. We're going we're gonna to add a few inches to it. We'll get it up to 18 inches. See if you can do that. He's still having a hard time. Well, you know, that's all right. Let's get up to 20. I bet you can hit 20. No, you say to Jimmy, you better work on your pitching because the standard isn't changing. And right now, in our culture, we're being told, let's just keep expanding the standard so that it'll cover everybody. And I tell you what, from God's perspective, it seems to be what Paul's saying here, the standard ain't changing. So what we do is we don't change it. What we do is we help one another Grow and change so that we conform to the standard. And it's hard. It's painful. Very difficult. Requires great intentionality and discipline. But by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the truth of His Word, we can change. And we can conform to God's standard, not the world's. Paul says, stand firm, hold on tight. And then he says, let us pray. (laughs) In verse 16 and 17, I love this. I wish we had a whole lot more time. Verse 16 and 17, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, a reference again to the Trinity, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, We sang about grace a little bit ago. May God comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Three quick observations. Paul prays to the only one who can do this. Paul highlights the basis for his request. All of those things for which we can give thanks every day. And then Paul asks for supernatural intervention on behalf of those who are facing indefinite affliction. Like it's probably not going to end soon for these guys. And just Paul asks God to move into that place of great pain and difficulty. And he asks that God would comfort or encourage them. And that he would establish their hearts. In every good work and word. And isn't that just a complete contrast to them being greatly shaken, as we heard last week, and alarmed? It's composure. Church ought to be the most composed community of people on earth. Because of all that God has done. I want to encourage you to pull this list out this next week and just go through it and just thank God again and again and again and again. You're saved, you're loved, you're chosen, you were set apart by the Spirit, you placed your trust in the truth, you heard the call of the gospel and you are destined for glory. 
Praise God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your goodness to us. We understand at some level (laughs) that we don't deserve it, but we are grateful for it. And uh, pray, Father, that you would use all of this that you have shown us today for which we can give thanks. Lord, would you use all of that to motivate us to stand firm and hold fast until you return. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.